Look, I know we did the last episode without a sketch, but we've got a genuine professional actor this time, and a stand-up comedian, and everybody loves a sketch, really. Do they? Hmm. Uh, an actor and a stand-up comedian? <laughs> You've really blown the budget this time, Richard. Well, not so much. As a card-carrying Yorkshireman, I hired Toby Haydock because he's both an actor and a comedian. And famously the nicest man in fandom. What? Even nicer than me? I'm not entirely sure about that. He's got some unusual writers in his contract. Oh, hello, Richard. I hope you got hold of the blue opal fruits that I specified. Well, well, about that, Toby. Yeah, it's Mr Haydock to you. Well, look, they've been starbursts for over 20 years. Yeah, never been nearly as good since. And I couldn't find any blue ones anywhere. Well, you didn't try hard enough. Anyway, my agent tells me that in addition to the story discussion, you've engaged me for a comic sketch. It's a bit of a tradition. Richard writes them. Yes, and uh, we have to pretend to find them amusing. What's that? I said they're all jolly amusing. Yeah, well, it better be. I've got my reputation to think about. You're playing the role of Guy Crayford, Toby. I- I've got you an eye patch. Whatever for? Well, I know how you professionals like a bit of method acting. Plus, the listeners will love it. An eye patch, On audio. Trust me, it'll be brilliant. Oh, for goodness sake. Give it here. What's my cue? He did nothing for you, Crayford. Absolutely nothing at all, except... <clears throat> except brainwash you. <laughs> That's not true! Yeah, try to keep it together, Paul. You were... I just bad for us, Crayford. Nothing went wrong with your rocket, Crayford. You weren't even injured. Take off the eye patch and look for yourself. <laughs> what? What's supposed to be so funny? And and why are you all wearing eye patches? It's a homage to that anecdote about Inferno. <laughs> it's funny because we're all wearing eye patches. <laughs> I mean, I mean, one eye patch is funny, right? But I mean, multiple eye patches. Oh, they just they just get funnier. The more eye patches you throw into an anecdote, the funnier it gets. I mean, I'm not alone there, am I? Yeah, I'll say it again. On audio, look, trust me, I'm a comedian. I've had funnier hospitalizations. Anyway, that's a terrible anecdote. It wasn't funny then, and it isn't funny now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that probably could have gone better. There's only one thing to do now. Hit the theme tune. Welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, that sketch, to make Something Who. Hello, I'm Richard, and we're back with Something Who podcast episode 63, where we discuss a couple of Doctor Who stories about alien invasions that use duplicates. First, we'll look at fourth Doctor story, The Android Invasion, from season 13, and after that, we'll examine Ninth Doctor Story, Aliens of London and World War Three from Series 1. And with me to decide whether they're fine representations or a crude copy of a classic Doctor Who story, we have a great lineup headlined by our special guest, actor, stand-up comedian, writer, presenter and podcaster, Toby Haydock. Hello, how are you? Hi Toby, and welcome back to Something Who, but of course this is your first regular episode. Yes, well, th- thanks for having me. I have been, I've been trying to get fit, so I've been listening to you fellows on many a jog, and uh, it's distracted <laughs> me from the pain. 
<laughs> By inflicting yourself to a worse pain, the, your creaking joints. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, 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 I'm, I'm, yes, I'm glad that one one sort of pain is substituted for another. That's great. I'm now picturing uh, like Rodney Bews in this. <laughs> I can't stand the confusion in my mind. Uh, next up is science and astronomy writer Giles. Uh, hello, hello, Giles. Richard. Hi. Hello. Hello, everyone. Antonio, yeah, yeah. So, so, have you got over the thrill of, of uh, winning the quiz of Rassilon at the weekend? Blimey, me. High stakes. Yeah, I think we were just lucky that we managed to uh, find ourselves at the table with some people who actually know yeah. some stuff about Doctor Who and have actually watched episodes since John's mission. Yeah, yeah, there is that. And finally, writer, storyteller, and missing episodes expert Paul. Hello. Good evening. Welcome back. Indeed. Okay, Brill. So. First up, The Android Invasion, which was written by Terry Nation and directed by Barry Letts. I can't claim that, that, that I haven't seen this one since original transmission. I've certainly watched it once, I think, during UK gold repeats, maybe in the 90s, maybe in the early zeros. And then also I watched it with my daughter, I think, as part of a... Uh, we were looking through early Tom Baker. So I've, I've certainly seen it on a couple of occasions, but nonetheless... It's not super familiar, so uh, it was good for me to uh, have another go at it this time. Richard, did you pick it at random when you were looking for examples to show your daughter, or did something in the back of your mind tell you it was a good one? I mean, without giving too much away of your your thoughts, can you remember? Yeah, I mean, the reason why we watched it was because it was the one after the one before. I mean, basically, we were going through them in order. What a prosaic reason. Yeah, and we uh, we got about as far as... I think we, this was the last one we did because the next one was The Brain of Morbius and I wasn't quite sure how she was going to take it. And then somehow we never got around to watching any more. But yeah, we definitely watched this one. So what about the rest of you? How did you, how did you come across the Android invasion? Well, for me, it's an unusual one in that it is one of the few where uh, uh, growing up in a house full of Target books because I have two older brothers and then I started collecting them myself. The Android invasion was one of only two or three that I, I held off reading because I'd then started to collect the videos. I I encountered a fellow in a comic shop who had uh, clandestine ways (laughs) and he had a direct route to, you know, first generation copies off from Australia of the Pertwee. So he got very good quality Pertwees, but he also had terrible quality black and white stuff. But I collected that first because I had this view that the longer ago it was, the further away from my birth it was, probably the world was a better place. And, And then Super Channel had started to show the Tom Bakers and I would never have had access to a satellite channel but so I got you know beautiful quality Tom Baker's was suddenly uh, available and so Android Invasion was quite an early one that I asked for because it was to me a blank canvas I didn't know the story even but I did uh, know the received wisdom that it was I think to quote Doctor a celebration an anomaly in an otherwise you know gothic season it had always come with a bit of baggage of being the one that was not as good as as everything around it so I went in with low expectations and as we will discover I was very pleasantly surprised you know many many moons ago but I I have since seen it probably an obscene number of times (laughs) Giles? I certainly don't remember seeing it, seeing it on transmission. Um, and so my recollection, I, I think I had a book before anything else. Or, but to be honest, I, the, the thing that sticks in my mind is I had the Weetabix card oh, yeah. before. Um, <laughs> so Stiglon has always been quite an iconic figure for me because of those... <laughs> You're the person. Second series Weetabix, yeah. <laughs> Weetabix cards because they had quite funky illustrations on the motor corrals. Yeah. And then I had the book and I definitely read the book multiple times. And I think it was a long time before I got to the 
When did it come out on VHS? It wasn't among the early ones, was it? So I think I never actually got around to buying it on VHS. So I might have seen it in a in a video room at a convention mm-hmm. back in the day, but I don't think I owned it on VHS. So it's probably really when it came out on DVD that I am. Um, wow. Saw it for the first time <clears throat> in earnest. Paul, I've I've got no memory of reading the book, though obviously I did. But it was one of the first Tom Baker's that I saw out of contract, as it were, <laughs> other than the ones that, you know, the late ones that I saw as a child. Toby mentioned the clandestine methods. I have mentioned before that I was part of, that we had a little Doctor Who group at my school, and it was he- it was headed up by a chap who had contacts who could get him clandestine stuff from Australia and wherever. And this happened to be one of the ones that he had in his collection. I'm going to get ahead of myself because this chap, although he was obsessed with Tom Baker and Hinchcliffe and the gothic mode of Doctor Who being the the supreme mode, like everybody was at at that time in the 80s. He, despite that, he liked the android invasion. He also liked the invasion of time. He liked some of these ones that have gone on to be, for better or for worse, rather disparaged. Mm -hmm. So I was introduced to this as, this is another great one. This is just as good as all those other great Tom Bakers we've been watching. You'll love this. And so you've got to bear in mind, that's what I had in my head as I watched it for the first time as an impressionable teenager. And I have not been able to rid myself of this initial openness to the story, which may explain some of what I say later. Okay. My main memory from 1975 is of Sarah, the end of episode two. That's the thing that sticks in my mind of of Sarah's an android. I don't remember much about the rest of the story, but that that certainly stays in my mind from, from that period. Where do we want to go next? It starts kind of like a lot of Doctor Who in the 70s, in, in a, a wood or, you know, some, an obvious earthbound scene. Through the ruins of a wood walked the ruins of a man. <laughs> I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a Terry Nation. Uh, watching it again the other day, and I, I, really, I actually really like the Android Invasion and always have because it was such a pleasant surprise to me. Although then when I did it with um, Rob Shearman for Running Through Corridors where we watched every story in order but also in the place where it was within the canon and, you yeah. know, in quick succession, its flaws were slightly more manifest and watching it episodically as well. Suddenly you realise that episode three does very little very slowly. Mm. But actually mm. the setup of it, the you know, Terry Nation going, I've got all these mysteries and a lot of it's sort of fairly basic plotting why have they got new money and there's actually no reason when you think about their plan why they overlook certain things and the doctor has his ginger pop and sarah goes i don't like it you know (laughs) for later Um, but it's all it's all very niftily done if you consider you know what the audience is yeah I, i think it is slightly by numbers but the numbers are all in the right order and you know they're easy to count and i think barry letts who's never been my favorite director actually does a really good job here especially with the location stuff where it manages to make beautiful summertime atmospheric, which I think is no mean feat, seeing as we usually mm. associate atmosphere with, with darkness. Um, and I think mm. that it's really creepy, though. Certainly the first couple of episodes as the mystery yeah. sets up. Mm. Yes, I agree. I, I like that, that mysterious part of it. I suppose there are mysteries in some other Hinchcliffe ones, but this, this is the one that's the, it, it's the most kind of how, how do we understand where we are, what's going on. So yeah, I like that. I noted that we get away with eeny, meeny, miny, moe on this occasion because Tom Baker stops at that point, <laughs> uh, unlike Celestial Toy Maker. There's this odd thing, though, where both he and the android to, you know, walk into a thicket rather than taking the obvious path. I mean, I suppose the android's malfunctioning, so we'll let him off. 
but I don't know why why the fourth doctor would think that going through the middle of a bramble thicket is the best way to get to the um I think the camera crew are blocking the path, so that's probably <laughs> the sort of explanation you're looking for. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That explains it now. Yeah. Mm. I think Doctor Who is at its best when... Um, it should be mysterious. Yeah. And the reason it's at its best when it, there's a mystery is because that fills time without padding. You can mm. stretch a story. If you keep throwing mysteries in and resolving them at the correct pace, then you can fill several episodes before you then have to wrap things up and you don't have to spin your wheels. Were you implying that the, the Hinchcliffe era has less mystery than other eras, that it tends to just get on, present you with something, present you with this week's Hammer pastiche, and then we just get on with it for four episodes? I was implying that without necessarily having an awful, awful lot of evidence in front of mm. me. So if you, if you can show me three more mysteries, then I'll withdraw the comment. <laughs> <laughs> no. I would say that in situ, though, any mystery is slightly undermined by the fact that in Terror of the Zygons, not very long ago, there were loads of people who were doubles of people yes. that were actually people. There was a pub with a camera in the yep. thing above the fireplace. Yeah. Mm. There are quite a lot of similarities. Yes. Um, it's almost like they're going, we're at Terror of the Zygons plus one. Mm. Well, it does seem to have been a quite conscious decision by apparently Hinchcliffe, Hinchcliffe apparently liked, liked Terror of the Zygons and, and said, yeah, yeah, more doppelganger action, please. Seriously. According to the production notes. Um, you sure he wasn't just covering DVD. himself? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe he made it up after, afterwards. Maybe it was having accidentally done Remembrance of the Daleks and Silver Nemesis. In the same <laughs> exactly, series. it was a bit like. <laughs> hmm. yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I feel sorry for for Nation because what he's done here, as people often say, is been forced to come up with a new idea, new for him. <laughs> I mean, it's not that. <laughs> unlike yeah, after several years of just rewriting the same Dalek story over and over again, he's now come up with something different and. Make, could have been justifiably pleased with himself if it wasn't undercut. What I like, I think, particularly about this one, uh, and the early and the early part of it is, you can you can see that um, Tom Baker and, and Liz Slater are getting on and they're kind of enjoying what they're doing. I mean, it's not at the expense of it of it being a, a good story and, and well acted, but there's a bit more rapport going on. And, and you know, there's an interview on one of the Blu-rays recently where t- where Tom Baker talks about. Liz Slade and the relationship they had, and you can sort of, you can definitely see that there's, that that, it, that by this stage they've really gelled. Yeah, it's their gold dust. I mean, their their the chemistry between the two of them is, you know, they make expositional dialogue, dance and sing, and it's like, uh, you know, it's like a, a little dance, a verbal dance between friends, and it's, it's joyful. And she she throws so many little sort of quirky little character moments into her delivery, and he can load anything with either a bit of import or, or a bit of sarcasm or a bit of testiness and it just it just makes it all leap off if, if your doctor and companion are, are two such good actors who also have that kind of rapport it makes the whole business of telling the story which is really quite hard because you have exposition and ridiculous things to make sound believable mm. just so much easier and i bet philip hinchcliffe thanked his lucky stars you know that he'd got those two because they're so good mm. Mm. It's nice, I mean, we've touched on this a couple of times beforehand and I've, I've probably sounded like I had this opinion that sometimes I say, oh, Liz's character is a bit too, it's almost so grounded and real compared to, you know, when we then get Louise as Leela and that there's this, that for me, you know, that sort of sparkiness, it kind of elevates it to some extent for me. But but this is a, you know, this is a really good example of where I think they they do gel very well maybe it's the setting maybe it's the fact it's just that little one step away from reality 
but it's it's kind of grounded enough to you know it, it feels like Sarah Jane is relaxed she doesn't have to be you know it, it doesn't put her in any incredibly stressful situations yeah. where you're worried about her her capability and not as a <laughs> yeah not as an actress but when she when she's in peril she plays peril so well that it's almost a bit stressful whereas you've got to think Lila can handle herself if I'm I <laughs> If you know what I mean, whereas whereas with this, it's all that bit lighter, it feels, and so, so it doesn't have to um, go into that zone. Yeah, it's it's great. It's, it's I, I really like it. It's, it's funny. I think uh, I get the impression we're we're all of the opinion that we really like this. And, um, it probably won't stop us tearing into it later, but um, but certainly in terms of considering this, the general fandom consensus or that long-standing one that it was a bit of a duffer maybe in amongst all these fantastic hammer pastiches yeah it seems I, like we're all coming down on the side of yeah this is nice i think it could only be two things partly that it's different it's not it's different to the others which is a, not a fair criticism at all judging it on what it isn't and also a few plot points that don't quite work which of course mm. we'll come to I mean, it's, it's not exactly alone in Doctor Who on that score either, is it? And when the baseline for Doctor Who in this era, which is you've got professional writers being edited by Robert Holmes and you've got Tom Baker and Liz Sladen bringing it to life, really, I think fandom lost sight of that, how lucky they were, and just had to assume every season must have a a duffer. Something, mm. yeah. It's almost like they... um didn't have the confidence to really enjoy and revel in the best of the best without putting something else down at the same time. I don't think you need to. I think ev everything in season 13 is superb television. And for my taste, this is better than Planet of Evil. But that's just an, mm. that's just an aside. Oh, interesting, because, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I will stick up for Android Invasion and I'll say I enjoy it, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's, <laughs> it's any good. In the same way that, I, you know, I like... I like fine food, but sometimes I enjoy a craft cheese slice with lots of butter in between two slices of white bread. It's maybe not the best bread, and it's maybe not the best example of cheese, but it's what I want at the time. And then we get into issues of snobbery, don't we? And we go, well, if it's entertained you, it's surely done its job. But, I mean, if, if you were to simply boil it down to the plot, you know, that there are some genuine liberties taken with storytelling, I would, <laughs> I would argue. And Terence Dix has to kind of finish it off in the book, doesn't he? He does, does a couple of paragraphs where he essentially says, these are all the bits that aren't explained in the television version <laughs> that I'll just draw a line under for you. I love Earthshock, but I'm, I'm not sure it's, it, its plot is its key selling point. And you can, mm. have, a, you can mm. have a story, Doctor Who or not, where it doesn't have to be that the, that the plot is like a, 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 a brilliant jigsaw for it to be entertaining. Sometimes you can have something with no plot that's well-directed or got good performances that, that diverts you in a different way. But but yeah, I would say that, that Android Invasion has has that brilliant build-up, certainly those first two episodes. But then certainly in terms of plot, it does sort of fall off the edge of a cliff, uh, like Max Faulkner in episode one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Before we get to the, that end of it then, while we're still on the first couple of episodes, I'd like to have a think about the pacing of the mystery. And I don't just mean the speed at which reveals are eked out, but whether the whether the mysteries are revealed and resolved in the right order. Uh, for example, everyone says that the big problem with this is that the twist is obvious from the title, the Android Invasion, which is a fair thing to say, but it's not quite true, is it? Because we're being encouraged to think even, even into the second episode that, well, the Doctor doesn't know what's going on, so yes. we shouldn't be ahead of him. 
And whether it, if we are, is that just because we're coming at it with, with our decades of hindsight? I feel like even into the second episode, we could think that these villagers are real humans, are being controlled, mind control, which is what the Doctor suggests. Yeah. And even if we've seen the title, The Android Invasion, the androids could just be the figures in the spacesuit. So yeah. it's not... Yes. Yeah. It yeah. isn't completely ruined by... It does do by... a clever little double, double bluff in that. Regard. Okay. So that all works except for the fact that Max Faulkner, the very first person we see in the very first scene, yes. is a hu- supposed to be a human and he falls off a cliff and survives. So what's going on there? Have they undercut their central mystery for the sake of a good opening, st- an arresting opening uh, but, visual? But then they do that, that, you know, the attention to detail of when he walks past the branch that brushes across his face and it, and it cuts his face, oh, yes. which, which yeah. is an effect. So they've got, ah, but we, which they probably wouldn't have done if, if it had just been a guide, you know, they wouldn't have needed to do that. But they've gone, oh, well, we'll do that. And then people will think, oh, but hang on, he bled, so he must be real. So it's sort of layer upon layer. But I think you could do the cognitive dissonance thing as well, sort of going, well, I sort of know it's about androids, but they haven't, they haven't given me enough proof yet that these guys are androids. I, again, I mean, you know, seeing the pictures before I saw the story or knew the story... I thought the androids were the guys, the the finger, yeah. you know, the finger shooting guys, and you could think that any sort, any other sort of, yeah, hypnosis or um, subjugation, you know, that kind of malfeasance was going on 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 Earth. Although, I mean, the very first thing they say is, "Oh, I I, I like that smell after a rainstorm," and the doctor goes, "Well, actually, the ground's very dry." And you think, oh, Emily, are you leave? Are you deliberately leaving clues for any time? Yeah. For any time? But but that's that's part of the fun, isn't it? It's a tricky thing, isn't it? They're the sort of clues that I, I guess that's the sort of clue where you're supposed to spot that on a rewatch and think, ah, oh, ah, oh, there was a trail there for, or that they're designed for only the most intelligent viewers <laughs> to pick up on who can then congratulate themselves. But even so, it's a dangerous game, isn't it? If you make those extra clues too obvious. You've also got the oak tree line at the start of episode one confirming it's Earth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think that's the thing that the um. The twist is it's not so much that these might be androids that have invaded Earth. We might think we've just started in the middle of a android invasion of some village and so what's going on? I think that the twist, the real twist is no, this isn't Earth at all. The, the entire thing is the entire thing is a fake setup yeah. and a tra- training ground. That's what I say mm. about there being layers of, of, of mystery. They're mostly... <laughs> They're mostly triggered in the right sequence. But one thing I think I might have missed, and this is probably me, so I'm just asking you because you, you're all very attentive viewers. At what point are we supposed to realise, once and for all, that the humans are androids and not brainwashed people? Because I've, I've made a note that midway through episode two, the crowds are just talking about it as though, quite openly, as though we're already supposed to know. It's not... It's not their dialogue doesn't suggest that we're, this is supposed to be revealing to the audience for the first time. So are we supposed to have picked up on it before then? Because if so, I, I wasn't quite sure where. And I, I would have preferred it if there was a clear moment. Anyone? I know? think it's very decent of you to attribute <laughs> such planning. to. Uh, yeah, so it's halfway through uh, episode two, scene two, is where I think we can start talking openly about the androids because my, I've, my, 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 my plot of audience understanding, the graph I've drawn of audience uh, uh, acceptance and understanding, it's peak android. Uh, Don't we during... all do one of those? <laughs> <laughs> it's Appendix B of any, of any standard pitch, surely. Yeah. Oh, well, right. I mean, Sarah, so, so the android Sarah starts talking to the doctor about android replicas. Yeah, cunning double bluff. 
that's about 10 minutes before the end, five minutes, 10 minutes before the end. So, but yes, I, I mean, the, the thing that I wrote down at, at this sort of point was the doctor doesn't seem to work it out. I mean, he, I mean, he, it, it sort of comes to him in the end and he sort of sees it, but I don't, but, but he doesn't work out the mystery, I think, particularly. I, and I think mainly because why would you? I mean, given all the clues that you get up to about halfway through episode two, this is the least likely answer, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you'd eliminate everything else before you came to this one because why would somebody create an Earth-like thing in the middle of a planet just so that they could have a go at seeing if they could invade it or not? Yeah, mm. why would they indeed? Well, you mean it could have been that the first plan was just to like make people make people like ginger pop first. Uh, that, no, once they've made you like ginger pop, they will then make you like fascism, uh, and then you know, do, do it like that. That was their plan. Yeah, it, 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 it's equally likely, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Now, is it is the end of part two that the doctor reveals the whole thing, doesn't he? On a on a plate, he's yes. worked out that these yeah. are real people, and this isn't the real Earth. And he gives yes. us that all in one go, which and is. We get- so that we're all up to speed yeah. now. It's a lovely cliffhanger too. Yes, mm. uh, and and obviously memorable as as I said. I've made a note. It's perfectly timed. This reveal, well written, but slightly undercut by the inconsistency of what's been revealed beforehand. That's what I thought at the time, but that was two days ago now, so I can't really back <laughs> that up. Yeah, you you launched straight in, didn't you, Toby, with the the <laughs> the fact that the the identical coins. And mm. the, the calendar pages—they're they're nice little details. They're they're very arresting. Mm. Yeah, I think, but it, I think it doesn't bear more than a few seconds. Thought does it as a why? How they could? I think whichever Kral intern they got in to sort of <laughs> finish off the you know the, the main architect came and went right. That's the that's the cover of your calendar. Uh, put some stuff in the till. Uh, in fact, not just the till. Make sure everybody's got some coins. They say, oh, well, we could knock off early if we uh, if we just do the same coins and just do the one think... the one date. Uh, I mean, I think that's the only explanation, isn't it? You've got it's like Slarty Bart first with his fjords. You've got somebody yeah. who whoever did the woods. I mean, it's not like every tree has the same identical leaf a thousand times, repeated a thousand times. So mm. they, there's but, some things they put in an absurd amount of effort, and other things they just clocked off early. I, I suppose you mm. can justify the calendar by going, they run the program, and then after the 24 hour cycle, they run the program again to iron out any mistakes oh, they might that's have good. made. Yeah. yeah, that's worthy of Terence Dix. That one, I like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's the other note I've made? I'm being while well, we're being picky. I don't know hammer it into, hammer it into the ground, but um, the doctor points out the horse brass is made of plastic. But I mean, is are the materials wrong on everything, or is nothing made of real metal or real wood? Is everything plastic? So why is it only the horse brass he notices? I, I well, don't that's know. the problem. They it's, do cl- they do climb up a tree at one point, and and you have all of that stuff going on with the bloodhounds and everything. And at no point until until a convenient point for the doctor to point it out. Hang on, all these plants and things are plastic. Right. <laughs> made yeah. of some fake material, which is, yeah. Yes, pre- because the- presumably the water in the lake, that, so he takes a mouthful of liquid plastic when he, uh, <laughs> he dies. And that's, that's why his throat goes mm. hoarse. Because mm. it's all it's little like- microplastic particles on his lungs. And- mm. I'm not normally the sort of person who gets fixated on little on details and um, things almost but not quite tying up. But something about this <laughs> gets under my skin. I don't know why. I guess it's because if I'd written it, I would want it to be watertight. I wouldn't feel comfortable showing it to any, anybody else and, until it was, which may be where I'm going I wrong. Maybe the reason... I was just thinking about this earlier when we were talking about plot holes. I think maybe the reason we are possibly 
sensitised to them, put it that way, in this, is A, because it's a realistic setting, or a more realistic setting than it's not happening on a, in a completely alien environment where anything goes, uh, and also possibly because it is a, it's a clever idea, and we possibly want it to, want it to work on a sort of Moffaty, here's a real yeah. steel trap of a plot kind of level, and you go, oh, isn't that clever? And then when, when you see it fall apart due to these little things that don't connect up, or sometimes big things that don't connect up, maybe that's why our discontent with it is a little bit more magnified compared to what happens on the planet Zog. The thing is, it's constructed the right way round. It's constructed as a piece of television. It's constructed with details that create an impact on the viewer and make you think and make you wonder and make you go, ah, that's amazing. If it's not proper science fiction, it's built from the ground up. Something, it's not the physical world of the the, um, the Kral plan isn't been built from ground up and make perfect sense. But who who cares? Who would watch or read that version of it? So I'm not complaining. I just I just want to know. I mean, is it all plastic? Has any of it been grown? Is any of <laughs> what's real and what isn't? Like you said about the water, the trees, the air. It's um. But I know, I know that there isn't a better story to be told in there which is more, which obeys the laws of physics, I don't think. <laughs> mm. Maybe, the other thing, the other reason this confuses me is because it's almost like it, it was coming on, touching on something else I'm going to say later about what genre this is. I mean, the, the story is an invasion of the body snatchers pastiche, right? Mm. Which I was going to come on to. In invasion of the body snatchers, the duplicates are designed to fool real people. But this village doesn't have to fool anybody. It doesn't need to be that. It's only the people, the androids, that need to be that realistic. The village doesn't. Yeah. So there's no real. Yeah, but 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 maybe they're method androids. <laughs> and, <laughs> so you know they, you know they, you can't just dump them on Earth and expect them to do a convincing performance if they've That's not true. If they've yeah. not had a proper. So what's my proper motivation? Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, they, they are going. They are going to be confused by real calendars. And, and coins that aren't quite well, so bright and shiny. Now, that weird smell that old coins well, that's, have that's, you know, that's, been in a thousand pockets. That's what's your motivation. It's to get to the seventh, uh, or, yes. or whatever the, the next day is. Yes, yeah, yeah. to the seventh. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, the, only, the, the other alternative would have been to take them to a church hall and sort of put sticky tape on the floor and sort of say, well, you know, the pub will be here. Oh, this, don't. But, but, oh, God. But, but, the future companion chronicle there, I've got... Oh, but that but also, nice, I, I suppose that the plan involving the pub is also dependent on the fact that the entire clientele of the pub are somehow in the Space Command Centre when mm. Crayford comes back, because otherwise they're entirely surplus to require. They do seem to be, <laughs> yes, yeah. You've got a lot of... Yeah. Yeah. Scientists would like a drink, yeah. and I mean, and vice versa. Locals who just wander, <laughs> free to wander around, top secret mm. research and stuff. In fact, it starts off as a space, just a generic space laboratory pl- uh, facility, doesn't it? And it ends up being a unit. Well, there's a, there's, there's a lot the of unit in Lethbridge there. has its own. Yeah, he's got his own office. So it's clearly yeah. unit aren't just passing through. Hmm. I mean, the the other thing that that I you know, mention of Guy Crayford. I I think in the first two episodes, he's the one character I, I don't understand, because he becomes very homicidal very quickly, and I don't quite understand mm. why he is why he's so desperate to to, to see the doctor killed. Le- I mean, later but on, yeah, and, and you, then almost immediately he he isn't again. Yes, late, later on we get a bit more die. justification that he's, um, you know, that the Kraals have helped him and 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 so on. But it just it just feels like he. Yes, he's, he's, his character is a little bit all over the place to start off with. 
Well, I can forgive him anything because he is played by yes. Milton Johns, who is one of the finest servants to Doctor Who mm. that there has ever been. But nonetheless, on this occasion, I would say the hugely miscast Milton Johns. <laughs> I mean, if I was looking around to cast a space astronaut, I, I think he would almost be bottom, bottom of my list. Um, <laughs> but he makes the contradictions of the character work because he gives him this sort of boyish naivety yeah. which is you know and that enthusiasm is he, that he's got for Stigron's plan and the sort of spiteful little wretchedness he's got about being abandoned and yeah. uh, and being saved and, and and as you say he's he's in episode 1 he's shooting at the doctor and then he's then he's sort of he he frets a little bit doesn't he about about doing bad things but then but, but then he's got this as i say that the sort of boyish enthusiasm about Stigron's plan but but then he's a bit contrite, so he's he has to be all of those things without the script really giving him yeah. much mm. many logical leaps, uh, mm. uh, sort of logical connections. And so Milton Johns does what actors at that time often had to do, which is just go, well, I'm just going to try and make it work on a scene by scene basis, and I'll give it some some internal connection in, in in my own head and see if I could just sort of carry it off. And I think he largely does because he's such a good actor. But mm. it is a it is mm. a very odd piece of casting but you can't take your eyes off him when he's on screen because he's such such, a, such an interesting fellow so i think it benefits from having him that that it might have benefited from having a you know a, a muscle-bound sporty type who would be perhaps yeah. more likely to be a, mm. a an astronaut and do you think do you think we'd have got a yeah a, as you say a much less interesting performance because because milton johns is acting all mm. that that isn't in the script and presumably what's there rather than this genuine admiration and appreciation for and worship of Stigron, he's just supposed to, in the script, he's just supposed to have been brainwashed. There's no need for mm. him to actually feel that. He, he, so would you mm. would you expect a more... It would just be boring, it, though, if, yeah, <laughs> if he was just rub it, rubbing behind his ear and going, you know, yeah. the, the, yeah, the, the crowds are marvellous. A brainwashed human and, a, and an android trying to look like a real human would end up giving exactly the same performance, so, mm. but not deliberately. I'm just wondering if that's a deli- I'm just wondering if that's a deliberate contrast, comparing contrast in the script, or again just an uh, accidental. It well, could be really it interesting. Does, it does beg the question of why they didn't just take all of Crayford's memories and make an android of him, yeah. rather than this very contrived thing of pretending that he's been pulled apart and put back together. <laughs> but they've mi- to make their story sing. They've got, but we missed a bit, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm sure we will have lots to say about. Uh, that moment in in episode four, but it again a uh-huh. bit like a, a bit like the setting up of the the village to see if it works. There are, there are all sorts of things that are are done to set up a mystery, and then when the explanation comes, you do sort of go, "Are you having a laugh? Come on!" <laughs> <laughs> well, it was ever thus in Doctor Who, and the new series is, <laughs> I think, falls over on that score. Well, don't they don't they have a similar thing in in Journey to the Center of the Tardis where? The guy, yes, they don't, isn't it the opposite that they tell him he's an android and then he discovers that he isn't? I think that's what I've. I confess I've only watched that one a couple of times. That's one more than me. <laughs> but but I think that yeah, I think that's that's the it's the reverse twist, isn't it? Yes, that they treat him like an android and he realizes that he's human, mm. which presumably and arguably with with even less motivation for for that than than um, Stigron has, yeah. so far as I can figure out it appears to be just a, a practical joke that got wildly out of hand but but i'm afraid that doesn't forgive <laughs> the android invasion for its egregiousness in this department 
because it is a very mm. it is a very silly thing to hang that element of the plot on. Mm. I mean, so we've got we've got mostly invasion of the body snatchers, except only paying lip service to. We don't really get any of the atmosphere or mm. uh, of that kind of. Ooh. Crave has a sort of hint, a soup son of a Manchurian candidate about him, doesn't he, with the brainwashing? Mm. But again, not done in, in any depth. He seems to still be himself, have his own personality all the way through. He's not, he's not a sleeper agent. He's not waiting to be, <laughs> to be reawakened. So, as brainwashing, it's all a bit hopeless, isn't it? And the doctor says he's been brainwashed, but well, it's more like to what extent is that true? He's, he, he, he acts. He act- <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's the only that was the only explanation. It's, it's more like <laughs> Stockholm syndrome, though, isn't it? Except it's not even yeah, that. Yeah, that's be, how it comes across. Because he's at, they're actually being somewhat nice to him rather than capturing him, per se. Hmm. And that would have been interesting. Would have been interesting if they uh, if the Kraals were not just lumbering rhino men, but um, did seem like an advanced, intelligent race of benevolent scientists. Hmm. Then they could have surprised us as well as him. Except the first time we see them, they're skulking around in their rather alarming-looking spaceship mm-hmm. and cackling <laughs> and r- stroking their horns. <laughs> the thing that absolutely strikes me as is an Avengers. Is you know, I was almost surprised to see that Terry Nation didn't write one of the several Avengers episodes that are quite like this, mm. and they tended to be done by other people because it's the whole setup, and maybe it's the fact you know the, the sort of little home county's village and. All of that set up. It just fe- it just feels terribly like you know right from the right from the word go with Max Faulkner onwards. That's that's so much the sting of it. You know the which which ones tell us as you've done the research. Come oh, oh God, now put me on the put me on the spot. I mean, and I think the town of No Return is the one that's got the most, which is the first Emma Peel episode, is the one that I think people have tended to compare this to particularly. Hmm. But it just feels like a very Avengery. Set it all, you know, 60s spy-fi in general kind of setup that you could imagine this being a, it's a bit prisoner-esque. Yeah. Although no one tries to escape, but the sort of heightened reality. I think this could be explain it for me. I think it's got so many influences. Terry Nation has soaked up all this stuff and put little bits of a dozen different stories in here, mm. and that's why they're effective moment to moment, but don't all mm. sync up or tie up. At it the is. End. Yeah, it's, exactly. It is all these brilliant moments, like the the coins, the the calendar, the bit with the bomb. You know, where the with the landlord is standing, blank faced behind the door, <laughs> and just waiting for him to open the door, and um, stuff like that is yeah, they're great great things. But yeah. So in terms of the story, not being quite sure what it wants to be, and I'll file this under missed opportunities. The paranoid air and the invasion of the body statues there, only really. Um, Text on personal dimension early on when Sarah recognises the landlord. She knows the landlord, the landlord doesn't know her, but we Mm -hmm. don't know the landlord either. Mm -hmm. So we only have her word for it, that it's a bit strange. So it's a tiny little mystery and it's there and it's gone. Later on, of course, we get unnerving duplicates of our old friends, Sergeant Benson and Harry Sullivan. But not really until the point where we know exactly what's going on. So they say what could could have been a really effective spooky mystery for for the audience until mm. it's no until it's lost all its power by the time they turn up they have nothing to do but act in an obviously evil way because there's no point trying to hide anything anymore i mean it doesn't even have to start at the space center they could be benson could be in the pub for example 
Mm. Or Harry could be in the pub. It could be a good way of linking the pub to the space centre. There are so many other ways you could have told this. And I think it would have drawn more out of that side of the story. But maybe the, maybe there's too much for four episodes. Maybe you don't need... Well, there's little mysteries about coins and, and calendars and a village without a future and people we know behave oddly. Maybe that's too much for four episodes. But I still think it's not so much a missed opportunity as... <sighs> It would be a missed opportunity if no people that no characters we knew had appeared in the story at all. But the fact that they're there, but they're used in the wrong at the wrong point in the story, I think is is the real missed opportunity. Does anyone else? Well, well yeah. Have any idea what I mean? Because isn't isn't the first time we see Harry is when he's interrogating the Doctor, or is he interrogating? So he's inter he's right. he's in the control center. He's in the disorientation chamber in the where control, are, what point's that? In episode two. two. Yeah. Mm. So, but okay. but it's not that. Harry has lured anybody anywhere. Mm. Is it the the android Harry hasn't been used for any kind of subterfuge? No. It's just well, it saves mm. having an android Corporal Bell or, or an android, you know, somebody we've never seen before. Yeah. But they don't, they don't take that opportunity to have. You know, Harry said, "Doctor, quick, come and look at this. I've found, yeah. I found yeah. a thing," and then thwack him mm. on the head, and they go, "Oh, mm. it's not the real Harry." Mm. Curses. It's just like I'm I'm being interrogated by not the real Harry and Harry's yeah. acting mm. and Harry's acting I, like he did when he was a Zygon four weeks <laughs> well, eight weeks, seven well, weeks ago. I, yeah. <laughs> Don't give him a pitchfork. <laughs> Everyone was being charitable. You could say, oh, they didn't. That was why they didn't repeat that character beat because they what? they knew they'd done it in <laughs> Zygons. Well, yes, we've done. We've already done seventy five percent. It would be a liberty. Exactly. It would be a liberty to go the whole 100%. <laughs> I think I've been a bit uncharitable because I suppose it gives it a slight lift in episode three when we get we arrive back on the real Earth, yeah. which is supposed to be sort of a slight reset for the story, and we get the reveal that the Doctor's too late when he goes to present his case to uh, is it Faraday and who we don't know, of course, yeah, <laughs> and Harry, and and we get the slight creeping realization something's wrong, and the Doctor says, "I see, I was just too late." So that's a nice moment, but it's again, um, if that was deliberately saving the characters we know for that point, then. But it's it's telling that you say that happens in episode three because it doesn't. It happens in episode four because not oh, well. not not much happens in episode three at all. Oh, I remember. And it's, yes, and it's we'll so you've got the two episodes of mystery, then you've got the episode where not an awful lot happens, and then you've got the episode where there's way too much to happen to cram into the last mm. episode, yeah. and you almost sort of want to pull half of episode four back into episode three for the story because it it, it it does seem like episode four seems feels to me like a sort of satellite to, to the rest of the story a, a sort of this this odd sort of coda with a where you suddenly meet a whole load of different characters yeah they're they're odd aren't they mm. yeah. and the kraals almost completely disappear for episode four they they reappear at the end just in time to be killed killed off mm, but um well except for except for, the, except for the except for their whole <laughs> except for the, the whole invasion <laughs> fleet who we never hear from again yeah. It's, so they they, they yeah. give up quickly, don't they? They they the 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 androids didn't work, so that's it. We're, we're just we're just going off now. Yeah, you'd have thought mm. they'd arrived just by momentum. You know, <laughs> just, uh, although I have to say, from a from a purely sort of fanish point of view, I, I remember being delighted when I discovered that Harry came back. You know, a couple of stories later, I like I felt that that felt quite realistic. Mm. That a companion having left would then nip in to be a guest of that. Because so often, it's like when somebody in Neighbours doesn't come back for a funeral mm. but, or, or whatever because that yeah. actor's no longer under contract and why would they bother coming back? I always like it if, if 
there's just that little sort of sprinkle of realism that the universe is not is not constricted by actors contracts or you know refusal to to revisit something they've just mm. left or been fired from so the fact that harry comes back even though he's not brilliantly used i know that ian martin was not not wild that that ended up being his his final moments in the show and i know john levine is furious and <laughs> it blames blames tom baker who had absolutely nothing to do with it <laughs> but uh john's gonna john yeah. <laughs> nick courtney very cannily made sure he had something better to do yeah yeah they got in patrick newell who i was horrified no i was quite pleased to discover actually when he was in the avengers as mother mm. patrick newell yeah. was 36 now what yes he he was oh my god uh, I, I i'm told by some members of the profession that he was a committed dweller in the cups was uh, was mr newell so he was uh, <laughs> Uh, he, he was he was a, a committed imbiber. So that was sixty eight uh, that he, he was he started his mother when he was thirty six. So we're looking at uh, so he's he's still younger than me when he's in the android invasion. <laughs> yeah. And I know I know I've been sort of I've I've had various <laughs> slings and arrows etched into me by time and experience. But I, I I feel when I look at Patrick Newell, I think well actually I'm doing okay. But I remember when I again I was reading that. Patrick Newell was in the Android Invasion, and it's only when he turns up in episode four that you go, "Oh no, he's not. He's not really in it. He's in. He's in one episode of it." Yeah. Mm. But isn't yeah, it? the, it's the it's the sort of last gasp, isn't it, of the of the unit era, and it's a it's a slightly odd one in that regard. Do you think they cut down the the, mm. the Colonel Stroke Brigadier's lines when they knew it wasn't going to be Nick Corney because it's it would have been very understated way for him to go out. No, because all, because yeah. they're spending Patrick Newell probably costs more. And he gets top billing for his sole episode. He gets top guest billing. I shouldn't think he was cheap. I don't like to be unkind, but he's by some way my least favourite pretend brigadier. He's like a sort of crackerjack version of the brigadier. Just... <laughs> <laughs> but not in a good Stig, way. Stig Ron, never heard of him. Yeah, it's very... It's, <laughs> yeah. Stop that invasion, it's silly. Yeah. Um, oh, well. No, you're right. I mean, he, he is the Peter Glaze version of the brigadier or something like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well... We've got to the end, so I suppose we have to discuss. We have to go back to uh, to Crayford again, don't we? And talk about the eye, the eye patch in the room. It is one of the silliest moments in the entire history of Doctor Who, and there's some stiff competition. But the idea that he's never washed his face, yeah. or just take it. The 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 listeners were were not privy to the hilarity with which this podcast <laughs> began is that I, I started the zoom call or whatever it is we're doing it wasn't i was late because it's not a zoom call it's something else that i don't understand but anyway i had an eye patch on and if you've got an eye it's actually quite discombobulating and very uncomfortable and i had to take it off fairly quickly because it's it's not an enjoyable... And also, you can tell you've got an eye. I'm sorry. If I wear a glove, it doesn't mean I've forgotten I've got hands. It's uh, it's ridiculous on every... And also, it's not even... It's, it's not that it's silly that he doesn't know he's got an eye under his eye patch. It's the whole convincing him that they've saved him by putting him back together because he's been... And losing his eye... That couldn't they have? Couldn't they have just mocked up a photograph of them p- pulling him out of a hedge or something? Yeah, anything. It seems to me like <laughs> like a lot of the Kral's plans. Yeah. It, it seems unnecessarily convoluted, and its flaws manifest to anybody that thinks about them for about a second. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. But it's I I think nation. I mean, there's a serious conversation to be had if you want to. My my partner is somebody who campaigns to have more sort of disability representation on our screens, yeah. and you could say Terry Nation has a a wheelchair user in Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah. Guy, he likes eye patches. He kind of likes that stuff and and Germanic names as well. He likes stuff that's sort of cool from sort of war films and stuff. Be it you know somebody that's. Yeah, got an injury or something, like that. and it, and it's all kind of window dressing to make, and and it is the sort of stuff that as a kid you would sort of go, oh yeah, he's got an eye patch or he's got a scar or he's he's, he's a wheelchair mm. user, which made it sort of seem somehow more grown uppy and boys only. It's sort of it's it's the it's the kind of furniture of the of the adventure story that is interesting to look at now through a, a modern lens. I you know I don't get offended by it or, or anything. I get more offended by the fact that it's just really stupid. But I think it's I think it's you know, there is there is an interesting grown up conversation to, to be had about it if one if one wanted to. It's annoying that it's so thoroughly botched because the basic idea that the Krals would do something so unethical just to um to win him over psychologically to hmm. to their point of view is is a good is a nice idea and if it had been done well and there are a thousand ways of doing it properly then it could have been a really powerful moment but the thing is i mean every everyone at the, at the space center though is cut from the same cloth as crayford because he reappears two years after they lost him and they're delighted to see him they don't notice he's got an eye patch they don't comment on it they don't say well no they, they, <laughs> might, they might have had training for that okay you know, to not to not be shocked yeah, yeah. you know this, this, <laughs> They've had somebody come in and give them a talk yeah, yeah. about how, sensitivity, how not to dis- sensitivity training. Absolutely, yeah. Don't display your ableist bias if yeah. you if you are reunited with a long lost crew member. He's got a bit missing. <laughs> splendid splendid uh, about three decades too early but but the yeah. other, but the other thing that, that is i mean did he have food and water for two years i mean did, you know did, did they give him all that stuff just in case you get lost for a couple of years we, we've got plenty of air we've got plenty of food we've got plenty of water don't worry about it guy you'll be fine because uh, because mm. basically as far as sarah says in episode one well he disappeared and, and they've, they've, they've given him up for lost so um, and then he comes back and it's like oh yeah hi guy great to see you again you know we... and, and petrol for his rocket <laughs> indeed mm. if yeah. this had been Malcolm Hulk it'd have been got it'd have gone through some sort of psychological torture proper brainwashing to convince him of all of that he, they would have actually had him in a cell mm. for two years convincing him that he was surviving on right. licking the condensation off the walls yeah and yes. he'd, he'd have also but, had ambassadors, but, of, ambassadors of death stuff he'd have yeah. also had some some really good scenes that were only in the target novel. <laughs> <laughs> and a and a middle name. Well, yeah, yeah. Used to do. Well, there we go. Yeah. But Stigron, Stig, we haven't actually talked about what we think of the Kraals. Yeah. Uh, who that, are, I think that's quite telling. Oh, <laughs> I on. quite I, I quite like you, them. Yeah, I I like the fact that they they don't just you know there's a lot of men in green suits with masks yeah. in Doctor Who, but at least they've sort of gone for some kind of the the sort of gnarled hunchbacky thing. They've they've thought about their mm. their body shape as well as the different face, which I quite like mm. because you know we're all we've all seen loads of series where you know people have got bumpy faces, but that's about it. Mm. Uh, so I, I like the fact that they've that they've got that sort of element to them. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's not Roy Skelton's fault, Zippy became famous um, and, 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 and the, the Marshall Chidaki is uh, is is very uh, and I like Stigron's 
death scene, you know, where he does a little bit of a backflip and then lands in the <laughs> in in the plague that clearly doesn't spread very far no. because it, <laughs> it, it kills him and then runs out. Yeah, so that could have been yeah, they were going to have to. Everyone was have to get very, very close to each other to pass that one on. But uh, it's still, you know, the green. Well, I, six feet. It's it's a nice it's a nice little for, for your climax. You know, it's a nice it's a nice sort of stunt and bit of goo just yeah. to give it a bit of uh, seeing as everything else takes place off screen. That's Barry Letts for you, though, isn't it? Hmm. He may not be, as you said, the best Who director, but he often puts in little extra touches that you wouldn't expect. Sort of things, you know. <laughs> Quite often, whole stretches of it will not be as atmospheric as you might think they'd like them to be, but there'll be little moments which um, he adds in. Yeah. I'm not talking about Mrs. Farrell's CSO kitchen. I'm talking about some (laughs) occasional backflip. I think the pub is very atmospheric. I like the, they do all those sort of shots of the, of the different supporting artists in the, in the pub, you know, when Sarah goes in and, and, and the soundtrack is removed. So it gets, it's the suddenly the sort of vacuum of sound. Is, is really impressive and works very nicely. I love all of that stuff early on. And she does a nice bit of talking with, with, with them, you know, to sort of... Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 she, that, that, I think that particularly helps with the mystery side of it, that particular scene. Yeah. Because she's, she's trying to sort of, uh, um, yeah, to, to talk to them. Uh, you, you remember me, I came in here a couple of years ago, whenever, and, and nobody's behaving remotely normally with her, so, so I think that's quite a nice... Nice establishing scene, yeah, moving the mystery along. Talking of Stigron, it, it's a, it's a slightly jarring moment at the end of episode one when his face suddenly appears. Because although on the one hand it's sort of saying, "Oh, the, 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 there's there's a big alien in the middle of all of this," maybe maybe it's because I'm fifty four and not four. It didn't make me think. Ah! I just thought, oh. I don't know. It, 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 I, I felt like after all that mystery, the sight of an alien face didn't necessarily worked for me as the as, as the absolute climax I, I remember the first time i saw it being absolutely baffled that that was the cliffhanger because I'd, I'd usually read about most of the cliffhangers and knew yeah. what they were in episode guides or i'd worked it out from it's every third third or fourth chapter in the target novel or whatever and i remember watching that episode and thinking oh cliffhanger must be about soon but i don't know what it is and then you've got a close-up of sarah's feet and it pans up to the telephone and stigrod sticks his face through a hole in the wall and I thought I don't I don't remember reading about that or that being a thing. And then the cliffhanger to episode three is Sarah talking about the G force crushing yes. her, but you don't you don't really know what's going on particularly, and then it just <laughs> doesn't. Yeah. So I, I it's 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 yeah. so although the episode two, which is more than a sum of its parts, because the mystery is you know well established by then, but it's still a well orchestrated moment. Yeah, um, very nicely done. Is is sandwiched by by two of the lesser cliffhangers, I, w- I would say. I think, um, presumably you don't remember that cliffhanger from episode one, because, I mean, it can't be the cliffhanger in the book, can it? You can't end a chapter no. with, and then we pan up. Yes. <laughs> 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 Little did Sarah know that a hole, it threw a hole in the wall behind her. A hideous face. No, I mean, not going to happen. No. There's a good cliffhanger, which isn't at the end of an episode, Doctor Who being tied to the, uh, the village cross. With yes. the countdown bomb, yes. very, he, he brings it back and makes it a cliffhanger in Destiny of the Daleks. Mm. But uh, but he here does. it's Good just point. early in an episode and, and kind of thrown away. Well, this is a funny thing structurally because that feels like to me it it just feels like you get a double a double thing. You get the destruction of the village and then they have to go on the rocket to Earth. And given what we were talking about, the fact that Episode Four's got too much to do mm. and could use more room to breathe. 
and episode three is just immense you know a lot of padding before you can get them on their way to earth it feels like you know i think i i'd misremembered i had thought that the the entire sequence of the escape from the exploding village involved them getting into the pod mm. and then ending up and then ending up straight on earth and then so i was slightly surprised that no they run into a cave and then then spends another half episode faffing around on Poseidon or whatever it's, whatever it's called. I haven't seen Invasion of the uh, Body Snatchers for a long time, but is the, do the pods, strange pods that um, our robots arrive in, our androids mm. arrive on Earth in, is that anything like the, the pods that the doppelgangers grow in? Is that where he's got the inspiration for that? Apparently they're a bit of a ringer for the ones from the, from the original, yeah. right. from the 1950s well, version. That's, as, as far as I can recall. That's more an assumption than a memory, right. Yeah. So, good, good, good. <laughs> and the the androids themselves, the other visual reference that's worth worth bringing up is, of course, there was all this. There, there was a sort of robots, androids, robot people, although with Westworld and oh yeah, uh, Stepford Wives as well mm. had had <laughs> yeah in the early seventies. I'm going to really lose you all here because I I do th- I almost think this could have gone to six episodes. Not because it's so good I want more, but because I think it might have benefited from more room to explore. There's so many different paths you could take with this. Mm. And if you could find a way, it may not be Terry Nation, that famously episodic thinker who would do this, but somebody could find a way to structure all this material and, and paste the, the ever-expanding mystery properly, then I think it could. And then you could do justice to the uh, the cameos from, from our heroes. Mm. Yeah. And a bit more justice to the Kraals, found out a bit more about them. I mean, mm. you're right, Toby, they are—they do look, they are an interesting... Is it a John Friedlander design? Is it one of his... Yeah, I mean, I guess Ambassadors of Death, they managed to, to stretch the mystery bit out to about three or four episodes in that. But, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not saying later, seven. I don't a... want seven. Hmm? I don't want seven episodes. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 don't talk crazy. Um it, feel, it feels like it could be a four and a two, and then the, for the last two episodes, you go to real Earth. But then you'd have to pad out the stuff on. You'd have to. You'd have to have a fairly wholesale rewrite of of the stuff on Asiden. Well, that's what we're paying them for. Mm. <laughs> you would think, if you, as as a viewer of the modern series, that um, uh, you know, and 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 an observer found them that Chris Chibnall had invented the idea of androids that couldn't hit a cow's backside of the banjo, and yet in this one we've we've got the very same thing. The androids are firing at, at Sarah and the Doctor for uh, you know, gay abandon for several episodes and never get anywhere close to hitting them. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just an endemic feature, I think, in the universe. People who've done research, is the line, is that finger loaded? An ad lib or is that all built in? Is it designed to have loaded fingers so that the Doctor can say something in his usual charming, charmingly disarming or fashion? Ooh, I don't know off the top of my head. I will have known this once because I did the DVD commentary on it, but it was a long time ago, so I don't know. I don't know. I'm guessing it's a very Tom thing to have done. Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a bit of ad, of stuff being ad-libbed or worked out during the location filming, I believe. I'm at the point where I'm going to throw in random things I noted down. Was anyone else remotely um, taken aback by the Kraals pointing out that the Doctor is known for his champion of libertarian causes? Is that just because the word <laughs> means something very different now uh, yeah, to yes. what it did 40 years ago? <laughs> He's a space James Dellingpole, is he? <laughs> <laughs> and um, the other thing that, in a different way, struck me as out of time, everyone starts, well, brief, <laughs> it's very brief, but there's a little period in the story where everyone's 
going on very glibly about how the Doctor is a Time Lord. Mm. And that feels very unusual for this era. It, it, would, it feels very Eric Sayward, very 1980s, when everybody in the universe knows what Time Lords are and has an opinion on them. But um, mm. surely for 1976, this is almost unprecedented. But the Kraals know, and they're even talking to... Uh, they talk to Crayford or somebody? Crayford starts throwing it around as well, doesn't Which he? Yeah. Just, I mean, it's only an episode earlier where they, don't the even know he's an, where they mm. don't even know he's an alien, and then suddenly... So, that's odd. But I guess that, that must be a Terranationism, because Holmes doesn't normally... Although Holmes, of course, has very idiosyncratic ideas on the nature of the Time Laws, I don't think he normally writes them as though everyone in the galaxy... No. As though well, them, got, does he? We've got Morbius coming up in the next... Next story yeah. after this, but that's a special case. Yeah, and would have come from Uncle Terence anyway. Mm. Hmm. Well, anyway, just thought I'd mention it. It's not John Friedlander, by the way. Uh, oh. Uh, ah. He finished with Genesis. Okay. Oh, okay. I guess we should probably try and wind up on this one and, and start thinking yeah. about the other. So what have you got? Who knew there was so much to say about the Android invasion? I just want to know Perhaps what Paul was going to say about the Weetabix card. I just got it up. I was just—I've oh, yeah. I've been staring at it, and I was going to say I can see why. Not a real one. If I had a real one, I'd—I'd I'd, yeah. I'd be able to retire, wouldn't I? Probably. <laughs> but so no, I mean, I can see why you might have been attracted to them. But yeah, I'm not saying that. I got <laughs> haunted by them. I ate a lot of Weetabix in 1977. Mm. I'll say that much. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I discovered that you—if you got the 12 Weetabix. You got a set of three cards in that, the same as in the twenty-four pack. Mm. I think if you got the forty-eight, there might have been something. But anyway, I insisted on my mo- my mother got the twelve packs because they were, then we got twice as many Weetabix cards, even though that was probably horrendously expensive. But anyway, there we go. I just remember at the end of the towards the end, having to persuade my parents to get a forty-eight pack of Weetabix in order to get the game with the dinosaur oh, right. in the middle of it, whichever one that is. Or whatever it's I'm eating a lot of Weetabix at the moment as well. Are you? But mm. that's just because I like the taste of them. Mm. I'm not getting any free free gifts. There are Vogans, Vogans in this set, and Hieronymus. Mm. Right. <laughs> yes. Probably notoriously. It, <laughs> it was a very disappointing game, as I recall, as well. Mm. It was, you know, it was like Snakes and Ladders, but without, you know, the charm of, of Snakes and Ladders, really. Mm. The Kraals don't look particularly menacing or threatening. They just look slightly contemplative with their downturned mouths. A bit, a bit <laughs> disappointed, you know. I think the only th- the only other thing I was going to say that's related to that is because I was familiar with the story from the Weetabix cards and then the novelisation. Yeah. It it was something of a shock to me when when I finally saw one of the Kraals in profile and realised they, they had the rhino noses. Yeah. I never yes. knew why. I never knew why everyone banged on about them being rhino. Faced. Well, while we're yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I've just realised my first ever glimpse of the Android invasion was a clip of it, which was on Blue Peter or somewhere. Because I used to every time there's a segment, a Doctor Who segment on Blue Peter, I'd record it on our early VHS machine. So I knew that little, that short bit of Stigger and torturing the Doctor with some top of the pops special effects on, on that torture bed. And yeah, from the from the front on, as you say, you can't see the nose. Well, it just looks like his nose is wobbling up and down, like they've glued it on properly. And for mm. years, I thought, oh, what a, t- what a shocking mask! That nose isn't fixed <laughs> on properly. And uh, yeah, oh, these me- what a trip down memory lane this has been. Those last three anecdotes <laughs> yeah. we came out with were priceless. Well, well, I mean, do you know what? The first time that I noticed that was about two days ago when I was when I was watching that episode. Uh, I, right. I, I on both occasions when I'd watched it before, I'd never noticed. So that so yeah. 
I guess this is why we won't get to see the crowds back. I mean, yeah, one day a Doctor Who showrunner will be desperate enough to try to <laughs> revive them <laughs> and look more deeply into their culture, but be- we've got Rhino people now, so... Um, well, hmm. that, what, what other parts are there fascinating, the distinctive... Well, that and the Terry Nation estate, presumably. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Mm. Yeah, if, if you're going to pay above the odds, you, you, you may as well be doing so for a oh, high-end product. <laughs> so, uh, Does that mean uh, we're not going to get the Vord? I'm either? afraid the Vord, no Vord. the Vord and the Krals are, are in exile in the outer fringes of the galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> Having their horn and rubber parties. Yeah. All the um, ice, ice Warriors version one point. Yeah. Zero, whatever they were called. Yes. They were ice warriors, weren't they? Oh, the warriors in yes. The ice. In, in, in You're digging deep into the Keys of, keys of Mariners. Mariners. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. That's my that's my Keys of Mariners deep cut. We won't get any cre- brain creatures of Morphotum. Morph- Charles Daniels and Tim Burrows, if you're listening. My, my <laughs> final comment about this was simply that it's, it's nice that Guy Crayford with his eye patch is in an office with Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart on the outside, so that, <laughs> so, that, so that both characters mm. who famously have eye patches are in the same well, <laughs> not necessarily the same office, but uh, but a similar office. If Barry lets Mister Trick, he should have had him turn round in the chair. Yes, um, just as a, <laughs> just as a nod, he, he, he would have known that that was a joke that he could have done. Yeah, mm. I, I think for for me the conclusion of of Android Evasions, uh, and I don't think we've actually touched enough. I know we've covered it slightly on how brilliant Tom Baker is. I mean, I think yes. every scene, you know, I've just remembered when he wakes up from the interrogation, you know, he goes, uh, once upon a time there are three sisters and they lived at the bottom of a treacle well. <laughs> I mean, it's all just, I mean, he just makes everything sing. And he's yeah. on particularly good form. I like his long, slightly um, uh, greyer coat as well. But he and Elizabeth Sladen are just unimpeachable in everything that they do in this. And they kind of hold it together. But I, I don't think the Android invasion is terribly good. But I thoroughly enjoy watching it, and so there. Uh, it's you know, it's 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 a if if I've got a Sunday afternoon to kill, and I want to want to watch a bit of Doctor Who that I know I'm just going to thoroughly enjoy, and that I kind of don't feel I know as well as some of the others. I'll watch the Android Invasion and have a good time, and then go, oh, but the matter, I like it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you want to go straight into the other? Do you want to have five minutes just to sort of you know to stretch and move? What what do you want to do? Yeah, one can... minute. I'd like to fill up my cup of tea and I'm also going to stop this recording and start again. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, here's a clip from my other podcast. Emily, have we got a podcast for our listeners? You might want to try that line again, Richard. What? Oh, yeah. Emily, have we got a podcast for our listeners? You bet. Hello and welcome to If It's Hurting, It's Not Working. Hello, I'm Richard. And I'm Emily. 
and we're your hosts for a new podcast about working. Most of us have to work for a living and many of us work for at least eight hours a day and at least five dates a week. That's an awful lot of time in our lives to invest in anything, particularly if we're unhappy, bored or unfulfilled in our work. So we're hoping that this podcast, being all about work, why we work, how we work and what makes a great job will be useful to you all. Yeah, and and we're also going to talk about what makes a great workplace and how we can turn things around when we're not enjoying our work and perhaps in the end how we can all make our work a bit better. So you might be asking yourself, why should I listen to this podcast? What do they know that I don't? Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. And I guess first off, we'll say, here's what we're not. We're not selling you anything. We've not got any quick fixes or miracle cures. We're not consultants. And we're not positioning ourselves as experts. But what we are, are two people who work and want to make our experience of work as meaningful as we can. And we'd like to share our thoughts about that with you. Have you what, what's your greatest job that you've had, Richard? So we talked a little bit about that. What makes a, a great job great and what makes a bad job bad? I mean, but often it's, it's not the content of the job itself, is it? It's the, it's the stuff that goes alongside it. Terrible jobs. Well, I've got a couple of them. When somebody has belief in you, it's amazing how much more you can achieve and, and, and what, a, what a massive difference it makes, I think, to, you, to your outlook and your output. That's so true. Like having people behind you that believe that you can do it and support you and want to see you succeed. What's the secret of your success, Emily? The secret of my success would probably be my sheer determination. So, Emily, do you have a dream job? Well, as a little girl, I always dreamed of being like Kylie Minogue. How about you? I think you've you've got to accept with any job that there's going to be some bits that you love and some bits that you don't like so much. And it's kind of trying to get as much of the stuff as you love in there and to to get through the the necessary bits that that aren't quite so much fun. I think that that's my secret to success. Hello. Hello. You're back and we can hear you. I'm back. Good. Excellent. Good. (laughs) Do you remember what you you were saying? Um, Hello. Oh, you're back. Hello. Oh, hello. Yeah, for some reason my computer decided to jump onto an internet network we don't have. Oh, right. Anyway, don't worry about (laughs) it. It's not John Friedlander, by the way. Uh, Oh. uh, Ah. He finished with Genesis. Okay. Okay. So uh, here's something that you can uh, put in for when. Uh... No, it wasn't. There we go. <laughs> Love it. Can we have a wild track yeah. of that, please? Uh... Tim? Well... I'll do it more naturally. Uh, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Oh. There you go. You got him. Oh, on. no, you're right, because he... didn't he finish the roundabout Genesis the Dark? <laughs> that's that's true. I think you're right. Yes. Mm. Yeah, no, it's just come back to me. <laughs> Nay, but this dotage of our generals o'erflows the measure. Those his goodly eyes that are the files and musters of the war have glowed like plated Mars. Now bend, now turn the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front. His captain's heart, which in the scuffles of great fights hath burst the buckles on his breast, reneges all temper and has become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. 
take but good notes, look where they come, and you shall see the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. Behold and see. There we go. 